Easter Sunday is the big day in Christianity. It just is, it's the big day. Um, it's the big day because it's, without this day, we, there's no reason to meet. There's no reason. We don't have, a, we don't have a, a hope in Christ. We don't have a gospel message. We don't have good news. The word gospel, the word gospel means good news, and without this day, there's no good news. It is the big day, bigger than Christmas, bigger than any of them. This is, this is what it's all about. I said earlier today, um, once in a while, someone you know, will say, well, what about Christmas? Isn't that a big day? Christmas is a pretty big day because we celebrate the birth of Christ. But understand that, that God could have sent his son and not be born as a baby. I mean, you get the Adam and Eve story. He could have just come as an adult and went to the cross, right? I mean, is that essential? The, the idea of Christ being born as an infant into our world is for a whole different set of reasons. So that he could walk in our shoes. So he could be, the Bible says, so he could be empathetic to what we go through by walking through our lives and our stages of life. And so that's the bigness of Christmas. He entered our world. But, but really, he could have come away from the baby stage, right? The idea of the resurrection is central to our faith. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no good news. There's no reason to meet, sing, or have church in the first place. It's the entirety of our faith. The cross shows the heart of God. It shows his love, his forgiveness, that he was willing to take the consequences of all of the sins and wrongs of mankind and bear them himself. And show us what forgiveness looks like. And that's hard. That's hard for us to do. But he showed us what true forgiveness in its most pure form looks like. And he spread out his arms on the cross. I love you this much. The cross shows God's heart. And the empty tomb shows life beyond this one because of him. And it's what sets our faith apart. We don't just serve a deity that we have to, you know, hopefully find somewhat merciful if we do the right things and make him happy or sacrifice in order to win relationship with him. He sacrificed to make relationship with us. He did all the work. The gospel is the most pure good news in the world, that God is love shown through Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb shows that the mortality that sin has brought is behind us because God said, I took care of that. Now, I want to say this as we get going. If you are a, a new to church, and sometimes the, you're like, I kind of, this whole message sometimes is a little, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. You're not alone. In fact, I want to go a step further and say, if you're a longtime religious person, okay, you're a longtime religious person, and sometimes the message of it all kind of gets jumbled to you, you're not alone. Now, you don't say that part out loud because people, you, you think you're expected to know it all, right? And you might know enough to, to be dangerous. You might know enough to say the right words and be like, oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can talk the game. But maybe sometimes you're like, I don't fully understand what's at the core of it all. I, I kind of get it, but I kind of have some hangups or some questions or some, I haven't connected all the dots. And I hope that today a connection can be made that can be a game changer for you, that something can click, that can change everything, whether you've been religious a long time, in church a long time, or whether it's all pretty new to you, either way. So I want to share an interesting story in scripture for a while today that I think helps make the resurrection miracle so clear and so amazing. Without what happens in this story, it would have impacted our perception of this amazing event that we celebrate every Easter. Here's why. In culture, in the Roman culture at the time, crucifixion, Jesus was crucified, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment that was not 
given to everybody. It was reserved for the real bad people that you really wanted to make suffer. Usual, and, and, and it was cruel. It was a cruel form of punishment. It was a cruel form of execution. I mean, crucifixion was torture beyond anything that you or I could ever quantify in, in words. And if you saw a movie about the crucifixion, you did not see it done justice because no one would watch it. It's just too truly, honestly gruesome to show how horrendous the cross, a, a, a crucifixion was. And the Roman government did a lot of them in those days as a way of letting, usually it was against political enemies or people who tried to do uprisings against their authority or people who did really, really, really bad stuff. And it was a particularly heinous form of, of execution to intentionally be discouraging so that nobody else would want to do what that person did. No one else would want to follow in their steps. So it was a big deterrent. Don't not just going to die, you're going to die in a horrible, horrible suffering, humiliating way. And people didn't tend to watch crucifixions. They put them in very public places where you couldn't, couldn't get away from them by, by, by thoroughfare, so people had to see them to be reminded, don't mess with Rome. But no one wanted to look at it. In fact, usually uh, people resented Rome's control over the world and, and their executions. But Rome was not the first people to execute that way. You can go back in time to the Assyrian Empire, and they used to impale people on sticks and skin them when they wanted to make an example out of them. I mean, the world's been cruel for a very long time, and, and crucifixion was the Roman cruelty for the people they wanted to make a spectacle about. But that's not all. That's, that's the crucifixion. Here's what you might not know, but you should is on top of that, once a person died by crucifixion, there was one last form of, of degradation for them. And that is that they would never be allowed to have a proper burial. The, the deal was they'd be taken off the cross and they'd be taken to the local dump, the, the burn piles, and they'd be burned and basically given a cremation never to be, to be found amongst others who were burned there and amongst the trash. In fact, every place had places like that that burned the trash. And in the area that the, uh, the Jews lived, it was the, called Gehenna. It was a place where they burned trash and also people who were too poor to have, you know, or no, they were unclaimed people or poor people who couldn't afford to buy a spot of land that someone owned to bury their body in. or have some, you know, they, they would take the people who were poor or unknown and just burn them in the trash pile, like a big cremation. And if you were crucified... That was the same outcome. So in Israel, it was called Gehenna. That was a place where they burned the trash. Jesus would reference oftentimes to speak about the fire there that never goes out and make a point about, you know, you know the things that we do and the judgments that come from them. But anyhow, apart from all of that, that was the outcome of a crucifixion. In other words, Jesus was supposed to be tossed as every single other crucified person on the fire pit of Gehenna, the fire pile, to be ashes like all the other crucified or poor or unclaimed people. But he wasn't because a couple of unexpected heroes stepped into the story. We're going to talk about them today. I want you to meet the first one. He meets Jesus much earlier in Jesus' story. We're going to see it in John chapter 3, beginning with verse number 1. It says there was a man named Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a religious, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now, there's a lot in that verse, so let me break it down. Nicodemus, we'll call him Nick for short, okay? Nick was a Jewish religious leader. In other words, the Jewish people at that time had their, 
strong religions. They had their scriptures. We called their scriptures. They called it their Hebrew Bible. Christians call it the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures in the front of our Christian scriptures. But this, this, they, had their, their, they had their scriptures, their sacred writings, very important to them. And in their scriptures and in their, in their sacred text, they had um, the laws given to them, how to live. They had the prophets. They had their history. But when Jesus showed up, they did not much care for how he did things. He didn't play by their rules. He didn't follow their, their system, right? And so when Jesus shows up, um, they kind of opposed him. Now, we make them the villains all the time, and they, they deserve that role. But that one time, they were well-meaning religious people who were trying to figure out who God was and follow him and be good people. But they just got off track. By the time that Jesus was around, it was so confusing. They were so lost. But there were a few among them who had a heart towards God purely and a heart towards Jesus as he walked the earth and did his miracles. But most of them rejected him. So for Nicodemus or Nick to come out as a Pharisee and meet with Jesus is a risky move because you weren't, it was not an accepted viewpoint. And you know how this is in culture today still, and this is true in, in, in all sides of anything, that if you're not careful, and you, you can get ostracized from your group and tossed by the wayside real fast. It could be a real career killer if you're about the wrong things. And Nicodemus, he's going to be about seeing Jesus. And that's a, that's a career suicide move if you're a Pharisee. So verse 2 says that, one, that after dark one evening, he came to seek Jesus. Notice he came, he came after dark. Why? Because that's when you don't get caught. It's nighttime. So we, we can call this one Nick at night, Okay. That's my uh, new sermon title for the sermon message today. Nick at night, okay? Anyhow, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, and he said, uh, we know, we all know, that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you, to which I'm wondering, who's we? What do you mean we, Nick? Who's this we you're talking about? Like, the, the religious leaders that you're hiding from and coming to meet me at night? You know, them, they don't know that. They reject that. But what Nick was saying was, there are some of us who are a little quiet for fear of reprisals, but we believe God sent you. And your miraculous signs are hard to ignore. Something special going on here, and it oversees our system of how we think we worship God. So Jesus is going to reply, verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What a strange statement. If you're hearing that today, like, what does he mean, born again? Well, that's what Nicodemus wondered, too. Verse 4, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? In other words, first of all, ew. And second of all, impossible. I mean, what in the world? So what are you talking about? In other words, are you, that's impossible. Are you saying it's impossible to have eternal life or to see the kingdom of God? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. So he differentiates this birth as a second birth, being born again. The first birth born of water. So at some point in your past, your mama's water broke and you were shortly on the heels shortly thereafter, right? You had a physical birth, and, and, and there's a spiritual birth. And like the physical birth, it comes when two people come together, and um, fertilization, if that's the right word, happens, and life is conceived. 
Spiritual birth happens when the truth of God, or we're gonna say the promises of God or the words of God come and connect with our hearing of his love and that, seeing that truth and putting our faith in it. Our faith of the truth brings new life, creates new life. And so Jesus mentions being born of water and of the spirit. He goes on and, and explains, he says humans can only reproduce human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So, he said, don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Well, I think Nicodemus may have just kind of drowned out for just a minute here, like what in the world is he talking about? You know, words, words. So at some point he interjects and he asks in verse nine, how? That's what Nicodemus wants to know. How? How are these things possible? He asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher and yet you don't understand these things. And I don't think Jesus is making fun of him here at all. I think he's asking him a question that is not just for his benefit, but from our benefit today. That here's a person who, who was a teacher. I, told, I mentioned earlier, you could be a religious person and still say, I don't fully get it all sometimes. And Jesus is like, you're supposed to be in the know. And, and so it, it's some, the, the good news of Jesus is so simple, we miss it. It's so simple we overlook it because it has to be more complicated than that. And so this man's struggling to understand such a simple, wonderful piece of good news. Jesus goes on in verse number 13 and says to Nicodemus, he says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man, that was me, him, the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And then he makes a peculiar statement that I want us to notice, verse 14. He says, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And if you're reading that saying, what? Don't feel bad, because why would you know? Unless you've read the, the Hebrew scriptures. Now the thing is, Nicodemus, he would know exactly what Jesus was referring to. Because this is a story from their sacred text. This is a story from their ancient past when about 1,500 years earlier, Moses was leading the Israelites out of slavery and they were on their way to the promised land and they ended up taking a few decades to wander through the wilderness. And they were a complaining bunch. They were a murmuring bunch. It was the wander years that we're gonna talk about. Uh, they were out there. And at one point they're complaining, but one day in their sojourning, they came across an area where there was poisonous snakes sort of biting people and people who got bit by the snakes would die. And they cried out to Moses and, God, and Moses prayed and God told Moses, I want you to make a, a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up in the air and tell people who are bitten to look at the pole. And if they look at it, they will live and not die. And I know that for some of us, we're like, that my medical brain does not wrap around that. That makes no sense. But it's one of those miracle things that was in their ancient culture that they talked about where God led them and provided for them in their, in their wandering years. So it's a strange story. Maybe it's foreign to us, but it was part of Nicodemus' culture. And so when Jesus says that just like Moses 1,500 years earlier had lifted up a bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so likewise he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up. That got Nicodemus' attention. 
Why? Why? Why must the Son of Man be lifted up? Verse 15, why? So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And this is not a message of, of anything more complicated than it looks like it is. It's a simple, clear piece of good news. That whoever believes, not whoever goes to church enough, gives enough, does enough good works, treats people better than others do, better than a neighbor. No, whoever believes. This is the new birth, the born again experience. It's not complicated. It's simply this. Believe that God loves you enough to do the heavy lifting. No pun intended. So that you can simply rest in what he's done and say, that's good enough for me. I believe that. He offers it to you. He doesn't force it on you, but he just offers it to you. See, but it's got to be more to it. No. It's so simple. Sometimes the most religious overlook it. So Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus goes home. And there are other Pharisees or other religious leaders like him, like Nick, who, mm, they kind of believed in Jesus or were leaning in towards believing on Jesus, but they were afraid because of job security, because you get, get ostracized for believing that. So they were kind of quiet. Another one's name was Joseph of Arimathea. It's a long name, right? Joseph of Arimathea. Just call him Joe. Joe and Nick were two of the religious leaders of the Pharisees who <coughs> believed on Jesus. Now, or who were thinking about it, who were considering it, but they were staying in the shadows for fear of what it would cost them professionally. Well, I'm going to fast forward in time a long ways. It was only six months before Jesus was crucified. Only six months before the cross, before Pentecost week arrived. I'm not Pentecost, I'm sorry. Passover week arrived. And there were like these traveling festival seasons in Jewish culture. Three of them that they had to make pilgrimages from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to attend. And six months before Passover, when Jesus was crucified, there was another, um, what you'd call a pilgrimage feast in Jerusalem. They called it the Feast of the Tabernacles. How many have heard of that before? Anybody? The Feast of the Tabernacles. A modern day term for Jewish people is called Sukkot. They write us worship is too cold. And um, what it is is they would gather at this time of the year and thank God for um, his provisions for them and stay in tents or dwellings. And Jesus shows up to this festival six months before he's going to be crucified. And everyone's looking for him. People are there. He's the talk of the area because he's been doing miracles all around the countrysides around Jerusalem. And so they're talking and he shows up and he begins to kind of poke the bear, kind of instigates the religious leaders of the day to say, hey, just like he was good at doing, because he, he wants them to crucify him at some point. That's the plan. So he's stirring the pot while he's in Jerusalem. And they wanted to arrest him. When I say they wanted to arrest him, Rome ruled the area, but Rome would work with local jurisdictions to, to over kind of police themselves in cooperation with Rome. And in Jerusalem, you had um, the religious system was kind of the authorities. And so the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they had their own temple guard. And they could arrest people 
with permission of Rome, even though they hated Rome, they could still operate under Rome's system to do what they wanted to do. And these religious leaders wanted to use their temple guards to arrest Jesus during Sukkot, during the Feast of Tabernacles. But they had a hard time arresting him because the crowds loved him. <coughs> Excuse me. So in John 7.45, it says this. They had sent the temple guards to arrest him. When the temple guards returned, without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We've never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. In other words, <laughs> he's something else, man. And look at the scorn. Look at the scorn that they are given in verse 47. They said, have you been led astray too? They mocked. Have you? This is why no one wanted to come out and admit that they were believers or they were interested in Jesus. Have you been led astray too? They mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? I wonder if Nicodemus or Joseph were squirming at this point or others. Well, we kind of do. I don't know. And then they said this, this foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. This is a classic example of some religious people. In other words, they don't know the scriptures. I know that, you know, watch out for those people that say, I know the Bible better than you, and I'm looking down on you. People who do that are usually missing the whole point of God by 100 yards. These people are ignorant of the law. They're ignorant of the scriptures. God's curse is on them. They follow him, but not us. So they're stirring the pot. About this time, Nicodemus finally has the courage to speak up a little bit. Not too much. That'll get you thrown out. But he's got to calm the room down because the crowd's getting kind of worked up. His compatriots are getting kind of worked up. So Nicodemus, in verse 50, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. He said, is it legal to convict a man before he's given a hearing? He asked. In other words, I'm not saying I believe or not. I'm just saying, shouldn't you hear him out? Shouldn't you give him a fair shake? And look at the instant kickback he gets from saying that. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Well, even though they mocked him and he kind of backed off, it did the job. It calmed everyone down. They're like, let's just go home. We're done. So in verse number 53, the meeting broke up and everybody went home. <coughs> Excuse my voice, it's just not back yet from being sick last week. After this day, the religious leaders see Jesus forgive an adulterous woman that they wanted to see him condemn, that made them mad. They saw him heal a man blind from birth who became such a spectacle that it insulted the religious leaders and they actually threw him and his family out of their temple practices. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, which made them want to arrest Lazarus too because that was bad for their business. And the Pharisees became more aggressive and more aggressive and Nicodemus and Joseph, who were among the Pharisees, kept staying quiet. Kept staying quiet. Because again, it was professional suicide to say you were with them. And were they? Maybe they were on the fence. Then comes Holy Week. We talked about Holy Week all week long. Last Sunday, Good Friday, Jesus was arrested. 
He was tried by his own Jewish authorities. He was condemned by them and beaten. They brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor, who did not want to crucify him, but they talked him into it. They basically strong-armed him and said that this guy's a traitor to Rome, and if you don't have him executed, then you're, you're in trouble. And so he felt compelled to have Jesus crucified, though he did not like the idea. They took Jesus. They beat him one more time. They led him down the Via Della Rosa and crucified him. And I told you earlier that people didn't tend to watch crucifixions. They were too gruesome. I mean, I could share a couple of details with you right now that maybe none of you have ever even considered before. You'd be like, don't even say that. It's just, they were gruesome, gruesome. People didn't watch them. In fact, it, you didn't, it was distasteful. It reminded you of Rome's power to intimidate you. But in Jesus' case, the religious leaders who called for his crucifixion, they watched. They brought the lawn chairs out. They sat down and said, they mocked him and said, oh, you're the king of the, save yourself, Mr. Messiah man. And they mocked him. And I wonder in the crowd of religious leaders that night as they condemned him, that day as they brought him, that time as they yelled crucify him, as they sat before the cross and watched him crucified, I wonder in the crowd somewhere, what was Joe and Nick doing? What was Nicodemus thinking when he saw him brought out after being beaten so bad he was beaten to a pulp? When he saw him led down the path to the cross, collapsing under the pressure, someone else carrying his cross in his weakened form? What was Nicodemus thinking when he saw this man that he met with, this man that he admired, but secretly out of fear? What was Nicodemus thinking when he saw this man being laid on that cross and saying, this isn't right? watching them nail his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross. What was he thinking? This is a tragedy. This, is, this shouldn't happen. But he was silent. And then they lifted the cross up to drop it into the ground where he would die. And I wonder, as they lifted the cross up in that moment, if as they did, Nicodemus suddenly remembered the words that Jesus said to him that day, so many, that night, so many times ago. When Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he watches them lifted up on the cross and remembers those words from their earlier conversation. Why, Jesus said, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I wonder if it, if it clicked for Nicodemus. I wonder if the dots connected right then. Jesus would suffer and he would die. His followers would go into hiding, but that night after the crucifixion, Nicodemus and Joe, Nick and Joe, did something very amazing. For two people who were in the religious system hiding their interest in Jesus out of fear, you'd think that they'd be even more afraid now that Jesus was killed. But instead, watching him die on the cross and maybe making that connection right there, something clicked inside of Nick and Joe. And they stepped forward and said, we're coming out of the shadows. The story goes... But I wonder, I, I want to back up before I get there and say this. Nicodemus, as he watches Jesus on the cross, as he watches him suffering, 
I wonder if he thinks about other of their ancient Hebrew scriptures, like the book of Isaiah. As he watches him suffer on the cross and die, he remembers the words of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, where he said, But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And in that moment, Nick and Joe did something they had never done before. They stepped up after the crucifixion. I told you earlier that the normal procedure for criminals who died on a cross was their bodies were taken down as one last act and they were tossed on the trash pile to be burned up in the fire. It's just the final act of degradation against those who were killed through Roman crucifixion. But in this case, Nick and Joe stepped in. It says in John 19, 38, that afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus. Why? Why secret? Because he feared the Jewish leaders. He asked Pilate permission to take down Jesus' body. He said, Pilate, I know it's not customary, but you've got to let me do it. He actually pays them. Elsewhere it says that he, he, gets, he pays them good money for it out of his own, his own expenses. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And all of a sudden, they're not in hiding anymore. That's a pretty obvious sign of your fascination or respect for that man they hated so much to claim his body and pay for it. Verse number 39 says, With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And Jesus was quickly and hastily laid there because the Sabbath was fast approaching and they had to be done. So they laid him to rest. And again, in this one act, Nick and Joe have outed themselves. They've said, out of the shadows. They've said, we saw you kill him and we're no longer hiding that we stand with him. And they laid him to rest. And then what? Then what? Then they went back home. Then they went home to grief like everybody else. Because that's what everyone was doing. All of his disciples were home, hiding and grieving and saying, what in the world just happened? You see, and it's important that you understand this, the resurrection was not expected. Jesus said he was going to die and rise again, but no one ever understood that, even though he said it over and over again. So no one was expecting the resurrection or as you can say it this way, nobody was expecting nobody, right? Nobody was expecting that. Like, there was no gathering of people outside of the tomb on Sunday morning before sunrise doing a countdown. No one's out there saying, 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6. No, it wasn't happening. It was like, they're home, they're hiding, they're grieving, they're saying, what just happened and what is going to happen? don't know. 
But then came the morning that sealed the promise. His buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declares, the grave has no hold on me. The women came by Sunday to treat uh, with spices to treat his body. They were shocked to see the stone was moved. The body was gone. They saw an angel. Peter and John are notified. They run to the tomb. They have an angelic encounter. Five people that day see a risen Jesus. And over the next uh, 40 days between festivals, 500 more people see him and communicate with a risen dead guy. And this was the game changer. The resurrection validated everything. The tomb, by the way, was far more validating than climbing out of the ash pile in the, in the garbage dump. He comes out of the tomb. And God used these two men to set something in motion. To, to set, set a, a place to this day. I just had a friend over in Israel visiting the, the space, the place of the empty tomb. And to, to change everything for 40-some for days later, for 50 days after the Passover, for a new religion to explode on the scene that has encaptured the world for the last 2,000 years, all because a tomb was empty. Because Jesus was apparently who he said he was. And these two men had an impact on the most significant event in history. These two heroes in hiding finally stepped out to make an impact for Christ. They came out of the shadows. They said, we're no longer secret followers. We're all in. And God sure used them. And so, that's how Nick and Joe saved Easter. Now, before we wrap up today, I want to leave you with one last verse I gave you earlier. And that is John 3.15. And here's the takeaway for all of us. If you're wondering where you are today, whether you're kind of new to the whole thing or you've been around for a long time, but you're just like, I don't know what it's all Here's what it's all about. It's so simple we overlook it. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You say, well, he believes and does the right beliefs. In other words, God says, look, I just want a relationship with you. I want you back more than I want you to pay. So I did the paying. I just want you, I want to have eternal life. I want you to be eternally with me. I want this to go on, but I won't force it on you. I just offer it, but I did all the heavy lifting. Just believe. And no religion wants to complicate it. Sometimes it wants to control people through other things. But it's as simple as believing is our faith that God loves us that much. It's, the gospel means good news. That's good news. Let me make this very clear to you. If the version of religion or the version of Christianity that you have grown up with looks like something other than good news, you got the wrong version handed to you along the way. It's very good news that God loves you. He just says, believe that. It's there for you. And Nick and Joe found that moment of belief when things seemed darkest. They found life in Jesus at the moment of his death. We can look back on the story and see what happened. They lived it. And the end, the resurrection was the game changer. It proved that he indeed can offer eternal life, that he is the conqueror of death, and he offers life to you 
Will this be the moment that you believe? Will this be the moment that you step out and let it be known? No more spending time in the shadows hiding it. I'm stepping out like Nick and Joe to say, I believe.